0: looked at the car, and they came back, and they said, we'll give you $1,500 for it. And I was like, what? $1,500? I was like, do you know how much money I pay for this car? Right? I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but you love this car. All the payments, and all the suffering, and all the washing, and taking care of, and brushing the things, the dirt out of the... And then when you trade it in, they're like, oh, we'll give you $1,500 for it. 1500 I was insulted, offended. My Jordo, You're going to make 1500 for my Jordo Because it's worth so much more, I said. The gentleman said, I'm sorry, sir, that's the best I can do. 1500 I was like, this is like cord, EX, leather seats, power steering. He's like, Pff. He said, good luck, good luck finding more. You should sell it yourself on the open market. Well, you know what happened? I ended up giving that car away because no one would buy it, not even for $1,500. is not it crazy the things that you yourself find valuable, other people don't? But who determines what is valuable? To me, my wife, my Jordo. by the way, it's still running. My brother drives it. Still running 1500. So to me it was priceless. All the memories, all the miles, all the places I visited, but to someone else it was just scrap heap, something that they would turn over and get rid of. A discount for my new car. But who determines value? See, there's this thing, if you hadn't tried it before, I should have done it before I went, I wouldn't have been so offended. Online, there's a Kelly Blue Book Value Estimator, and you put in there how many miles, what it has, does it have any chips, any dings, and you put in there, and it tallies up what you can expect, so that when you go, you're not so surprised that other people don't value what you value. It's one thing to measure the worth of an inanimate object, a car. Uh, a, a house. It's a very different thing to to measure the value of a person. That's what we're talking about today. Trade value. Open your Bibles, please. To the Book of Mark, Chapter Eight. We've been studying the Book of Mark, journeying through the Book of Mark. We're in Mark Chapter Eight. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you, and I'm going to encourage you to open it up and read it along with me, because you are in the house of God, and if you come to the house of God, my hope is that you are seeking to know the will of God, and if you want to know the will of God, you've got to read the Word of God. It starts there. Without the Word of God, you cannot know the will of God. So the Word of God tells us in the book of Mark, chapter 8, that Jesus has something to say about trade values. All right, if you're in Mark, chapter 8, say, Amen. Amen. Alright, fantastic. So follow along with me. We're in Mark chapter 8 beginning with verse 31. 31. And in 31 it says this, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been journeying in the book of Mark, and one of the things that's unique about the book of Mark and the Gospels and the four comparative Gospels is it's the shortest one. So Matthew tells tales about genealogy and birth, etc., and Mark just gets right to it. Luke talks about healings and and diseases and stuff, and Mark just gets right to it. John talks about theological constructs, before the world was, he was, but, but Mark just tells it like it is. So this particular verse is essentially, essentially the thesis for Mark's statement on the life of Jesus. And it says, He spoke plainly about this. Jesus just spoke plainly. If you're with us, you realize, because we've been talking about the book of Mark and the way Jesus interacts with people, and if you were with us last week and the week before, you'll you'll understand that sometimes Jesus doesn't, or didn't up to this point, fully explain himself. Oftentimes, he will respond to questions, concerns, and doubts with parables, stories. Uh, Do you have someone like that in your life? That when you ask them something, they respond to you in story format? Is there anybody like that? I have a brother whom I love dearly, who, um, uh, for whatever reason, he loves analogies. Uh, He loves analogies. He speaks in analogies. And no matter what you ask him... You're going to say, so um, do I turn right or left? And he's like, well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, he says, it's kind of like if you're choosing between rice and the beans, you know, you need to. And he's always responding to me in these analogies. And I'm like, dude, just tell me which way to go. And oftentimes in the Bible, this is the way people would respond to Jesus because they would say, what about this? And Jesus would say, There once was, and then he would tell a story. After which people were sort of scratching their heads. Because oftentimes Jesus didn't finish his stories. (laughs) He didn't explain. Or other times he would quote verses. Old Testament, he would go old school on people. This is what we read last week. You remember? The Pharisees, the the religious experts came to Jesus and they said, How come your guys don't follow the tradition of the elders? Why aren't they doing what everyone else is doing? Why do they eat with unclean hands? You remember the... uh, no one? You don't remember? You weren't here last week? And you're, did you do it this week, by the way? Did you do it? Did you? Eggshell. One and a half eggshells. Yeah, and, and, and so he's asking, they're asking Jesus, and Jesus responds, not by telling them something. He just says, oh, the prophet Isaiah spoke about you guys. When he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me. And then he walks away. See, Jesus isn't always ready to speak clearly, plainly. And, and, and they were confused and concerned. As you'll see, even his own disciples were confused and concerned. But what they don't know is that Jesus is protecting them. Because the truth hurts sometimes. The truth cuts deep sometimes. So Jesus is just giving them a way to move in without being cut. Except now, he changes course. The Bible says right here. That Jesus begins to speak plainly, plainly, plainly about his purpose on earth. And he spoke plainly. No more riddles, no more parables. He just said, look, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. And he must be killed. And then after three days, rise again. Up until this moment... The disciples and, and others who had gathered around Jesus who followed were kind of hoping for a different conclusion to his story. They kind of hoped, you already know this, they kind of hoped that he would become a political figure, perhaps more than a religious figure, a political one that would bring political change, that would change circumstances. And uh, they were eager to sort of move him in this direction. You know this because you're a student of the Gospels. You know that the disciples constantly would fight amongst themselves as to who was more important and what place they would occupy once Jesus revealed his true political power. But but Jesus then, at this moment, says, okay, you guys aren't getting... Oh, where's Yasmin? You're not picking up what... Um Putting down, no one? Okay, okay. <laughs> Yasmin's yes, not here to help me. Uh, so, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, you don't understand what I'm saying. You, you, don't, you don't comprehend. So, he begins to speak plainly about who he is and what he's about to do. So, listen, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man, that's him, capital S, capital M. The Son of Man must suffer many things, must be killed, and then will rise again. Three things. Must suffer, must die, and then will rise again. And for the first time in their journey, he speaks so clearly that the disciples realize they don't want any part of this. Suddenly they're like, oh, wait, is this what following Jesus is about? Is, is this what we signed up for? I don't know if, if maybe you're in that place in your life, you're in that journey, maybe it's going to happen today where you showed up to church and you're thinking, I go to church and then this is going to happen and that, God's going to bless me. And then, and then you realize that Jesus is here to suffer, die, before he can be resurrected. And you're like, wait, I'm not sure I signed up for that. And we know this because the Bible tells us that the minute he begins to speak plainly, look, when he speaks plainly, Peter takes him aside and Peter begins to rebuke him. Now, if you don't know anything about Peter, the disciple, he, was, he considered himself sort of to be the spokesman of the group. He was one of the elder statesmen. And he was bold, very bold, but usually about the wrong things. And in this case, he hears Jesus being clear, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to have to die, and then I'll be resurrected. And Peter's like not having any of it. So the Bible tells us that in respect for Jesus, he says, come here, let me talk to you for a minute. Just pulls him aside and he's like, if you read the account in Matthew, he's like, Jesus it's not going to go down that way. That will never happen. It will never be that way. Now I give Peter some credit. He's trying to do a noble thing. He's trying to say, Jesus, Uh, maybe you don't really understand what's happening here, but we're trying to make you, you know, essentially, maybe you didn't figure it out in all your parables and stuff, what we're actually trying to do. So I'm going to just clue you in. That's not going to happen. You're not going to die. Don't talk about that. We're here to make you king. We're here to make you. He begins to, the Bible says rebuke, which means he's not being gentle, actually. He's kind of telling Jesus off. Have you ever done that? I bet you have. I bet you have. Jesus is laying out something that you don't like, and you're like, uh, ah, I've had it. Don't talk to me about that. Peter says, Jesus, it'll never happen that way. He begins to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus cuts him off. The Bible says, Peter began to rebuke him, but then Jesus turned, looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. Now, I give you permission to use that word before, rebuke. We don't normally use it, but it's a strong way of saying, eh, stop right there. This is as far as you need to go. Rebuke means like, not only am I saying stop, I'm saying turn around and go back where you came from. Uh, You know, that that phrase you use when your teenage daughter comes out and she's wearing something and you're like, I rebuke you and you got to go back in (laughs) and put something else on. Right? You know, you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Uh-uh, you ain't leaving the house Look, I rebuke you. So you go ahead, all right? I'm giving you permission. You can rebuke, especially if you're convinced you're correct. But here, Peter is rebuking Jesus, and Jesus says, no, no, no. And then, and then he addresses the real problem. Look, 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 look. The Bible says Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter, but he says these words, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now those are strong words, and I'm not giving you permission to use those on each other. Because they're not meant for you. Peter is trying to do something noble, but in that misguided attempt, he becomes the mouthpiece for Satan. Because what he's saying right now, if you look closely, is an echo of something Jesus has heard before. See, Jesus says the Son of Man has come to suffer, be rejected, die before he can resurrect. But Peter says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. We can gain ground differently. No, 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 you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die don't worry, I've got a plan. It's the same thing Jesus heard before he started his ministry in the desert when he was fasting, you remember? Breads into I mean stone into bread, and, 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 and Satan takes him to a high place. This is Book of Matthew. We study this together. Book of, and Book of Matthew, Satan takes him up and he says, Look, look at all the kingdoms. You don't have to suffer, you don't have to die, you don't have to. I will give you all that if you just bow down and worship me. Take the shortcut. Make it easier. You don't have to endure. You don't have to work hard. Just take a pill. It'll fix it. You don't have to endure. You don't have to work hard. Just cheat and get around it. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to endure. Just worship me and I'll give it all to you. Peter says, Jesus, you don't have to endure. And Jesus recognizes the voice of Satan in there. Because Satan is always going to sell you Satan is always going to sell you convenience over commitment. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's the exact same phrase he used in the desert. Because he's identifying the same enemy. Friends, this is important as we're getting in here. What you need to know is that we live in a society that's cast us as each other's enemies. We live in a society that is constantly trying to paint us in opposition to one another. You are for or against this. You are for gun control or against gun control. You are for uh, Delta or against the, You are for or against. Republican, Democrat, Liberal, Conservative, Bonita... I don't know you fill in the blank there. Constantly painting us as enemies of... But we are not enemies. The real enemy, his name is Satan. I've been wrestling with this. Jesus comes and He says, The Son of Man must suffer. But have you ever asked yourself why? Why does Jesus have to suffer? We sort of get the idea that He had to die because we've been, you know, sort of like trained to believe that uh, sin equals death, right? For the wages of sin are death. And and all of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So we sort of get the idea that Jesus must die in our place. But why does he have to suffer? Why? Why does he have to endure ridicule and scorn and public shame? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why doesn't just Jesus show up, they kill him, and then we get on with it? Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. I have been wrestling with this. Why? Why does he have to suffer? What does this prove? What does this say? See, Satan is trying to paint a picture of God and Jesus has has come to reclaim the image of God. And he expresses it this way. The Son of Man must suffer and must be killed. There's just no other way. Even Jesus asked, you know this, is there some other way? But no, no answer came from God. He must suffer. He must be rejected. The prophecies speak. The book of Isaiah talks about it. The Psalms talk about it, that the Son of Man would come and endure great pain, great sacrifice for you, for me. And here as Peter is trying to say, no, no, let's, let's take a shortcut, let's avoid all that, Jesus rebukes Satan. And he says these words, he says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he begins to clarify how the things of men are often, I always, in opposition to the things of God. Things of man and the things of God. See, Satan wants us to believe that we are each other's enemy. But what's really happening is Satan is God's enemy. And the things that he has led us to believe are important to us, the Bible calls the things of men, are only of benefit to Satan. So Jesus says, you don't understand the difference between these things. And then he continues, he turns to the larger grouping and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is familiar, you've probably heard it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. What's fascinating here, and kind of washes over you because you've heard the language of the cross, is that when Jesus is making this imagery, no one would identify being on a cross as something good, something honorable. Death on a cross is the most humiliating, most shameful death you could experience in their culture because it was reserved for only the worst of the worst pedophiles, people like condemned by all society had to carry that cross. You know why? Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to kill your spirit before they killed your body. So they made you carry this cross so that when you walked through the town, everybody would mock you and ridicule you and shame you. There was no coming back from that. They didn't want to make it easy and just snuff you out. They wanted you to endure the pain and the suffering that you had caused other people, they wanted you to die from shame first before you hung on that cross. And they didn't kill you quickly. You know that you could hang on that cross for days, and people would mock you day in and day out. You would just hang in there until you finally couldn't breathe anymore. You can pull yourself up. You're no strength left in your arms and your feet. It was, it was not a death that mattered here. It was the, 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 the suffocating of your, of your goodwill, suffocating of hope. And Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, he must suffocate. He must carry shame. He must carry his cross, deny himself and come after me. See, friends, I don't think we understand that Jesus has come to lay down a path of suffering, death, before there can be resurrection. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to understand that what I'm inviting you to is a life of suffering, death, before they can be resurrection. You ever think about that? Have you ever read it that way? I think not, because most of us think that if I come to God, he's supposed to make everything easier. Right? And, and, and while in some ways that's true, maybe you don't understand the full concept here. Certainly, certainly Peter didn't. That's why he's like, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going you're gonna to be king. It's going to get easier for all of us. But Jesus says, get behind me. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. Because these two things are opposite. Look, the things of men always lead us to separation. I am against you. You're on that side. I'm on this side. But the things of God always bring us towards reconciliation. Opposite. The things of men always lead to suffering. Left to our own devices, we are incapable of compassion. We always end up abusing power. And hurting each other and devaluing each other. Just look around you. Everything in the world that you live in is trying to, is trying to monetize you. <laughs> characterize you. Quantify you. It's a funny line. But it's true. Chris Rock says, whenever your you, you ladies talk about somebody, a man that they met, the first question they ask is, what does he do? Right? What does he do? What do you have to offer? What do you make? And, and, and whenever we talk about young women or women in life, oh, what does she look like? The world is trying to value you according To its own standards and the things of men are always looking to devalue you but who has a right to put a price on your head and on your spirit and in your life Jesus says you don't understand dehumanizing culture would always bring death but I have come to bring life except we can't get there unless I suffer and I die Jesus had come to be a servant to give but we are concerned with winning the things of man are concerned with winning but Jesus had come to lose <laughs> convenience versus commitment separation versus reconciliation Grudges versus forgiveness. The things of man are so different. And Jesus says to Peter and to the rest, You don't get it, but the Son of Man has come to lay down a new path. And whoever, if anyone would come after me, he must learn to deny himself take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for my sake will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for a woman to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or worse, what can someone give in exchange for their soul? So I've been wrestling with that question, friends. What can I give in exchange for my soul? What is my soul? What is your soul worth? Think about it for a minute. Here Jesus is proposing a path that is foreign to us. A path of sacrifice, a path of self-denial, a path of giving in, of suffering, of shame, perhaps for the sake of others. And we don't want that. We prefer a path of convenience. We prefer a path of what's my preference, what I like, what makes me happy. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me. Or, he says, can you find your way on your own? Is there anything you can give in exchange for your soul? For whoever uh, seeks to save his life will lose it. See, what we've discovered and what you know, you already know from your experience, is no matter what you try to find on your own, it always over-promises and underdelivers. Did you know that if uh, if you had invested in Snapchat when it became an IPO you'd be very wealthy you you, you guys know what an IPO is like a you know, public shared commodity uh, you'd be very wealthy except uh, except that except that Kylie last week tw- tweeted something about Snapchat and then your fortune just went down the tubes some billion dollars by one tweet Did you know that if you've invested in, in in foreign steel you'd be very wealthy and, until president Trump said he's going to put t- and now you're psh- see Everything that we believe is valuable, that we put our hopes in, can be gone just like that. Right? So Jesus asked this most significant question. What are you worth? And where did you find that? What can you give in exchange for your soul? So I've been doing the math. I don't know if you've ever done this. But but um, some time ago, I had uh, uh, somebody meet us at our house. And we are creating our will. You know, you, that's the... You, you do a, a living will, a trust, yeah, a trust, and uh, they, they come and they have all these forms for you to fill out, and you're supposed to put on there, there's a balance sheet for your life in where you put what you own and its value. And then your liabilities, what you owe to somebody else. And my wife and I were, you know, uh, we were getting. This was before we went to India. We were like, we are going to India. We might never come back, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we're like, we better leave things in order, right? We don't know, right? We don't know. And so we we were trying to do this, and we were doing this balance sheet. And I don't know if you've ever done it, but um, it was quite embarrassing. For despite the fact that you know. We're both professionals we've been working i 've been working for 20 years, and we are, was, the balance sheet was so negative, so negative you know because we live in that culture, right? I live in a house that I do not own. it owns me because I owe I drive a car that I do not own, right I have an education that I haven't paid for. I still make. Loan payments. So when you add them up, you can have the appearance of a highly successful life, but on the black and white balance sheets, we're millionaires in debt. And all of a sudden, your sense of perspective is like awakened. You're like, wait a minute. So I'm really not worth, because that's the way it's described, your net worth. Now maybe some of you guys, maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you planned well, you did well, and you're all in the black. But I'm just saying, in this world, in the context where we live in, everything that you think you can hang on to, one one tweet from Kylie and it's gone. You know, some executive time for our president and then your wealth is gone. Your health, your looks, all the things that you value about yourself, time will strip that away too if you don't believe that just pull out some pictures of yourself from a few years ago right that's the truth Every way, every day, every week you realize that this world, this life is taking taking your health it is you know that Is that what you're worth? Uh, Some of us put our value and our worth in the relationships that we have. We get lost in the people that we love. But you know, that won't last forever either. We get lost in the value of our profession, what we can do, until we get laid off. Until the company closes down. Until the church shuts down and they send you somewhere else our value, friends. What can we give? Jesus says, what are you willing to exchange for your life? What can you give? And I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm trying to do this balance sheet. What is my trade value? If I was going to trade myself in and say to God, look, I need passes into the eternal life, and here's what I've got. Here's what I've got to offer. What would I trade in? My success? I hate to say this about myself, but I'm in my 40s, and what have I done? Not much. Did I build anything? Has anything got my name on it? Is there a foundation that, no? I've lived, I've loved, I've tried, but honestly, be honest with yourself. What have you got to trade in? My finances? Oh, God will laugh at those. My accomplishments? I got a couple trophies in the office. Could I say, look, God, I won a volleyball tournament when I was 21. Is that good enough? Am I worth? I got a second place trophy from the uh, school's uh, two-on-two tournament. Is that good enough? i got a spelling bee medal. Does that get me in? Is that worth my soul? Can I trade that? Think about it. You know, the honest truth is, I'm just being real with you guys. I'm going to speak plainly. What I've got a lot of is regrets. What I've got a lot of is failures. What I've got a lot of is weakness. What I've got a lot of is a track record of sin. That's what I got. Imagine trying to come in with a bookload of that and say, okay, here, God, here's what I've got. Think about it. But the fascinating thing is here, friends, Jesus says, but if you take all that nothingness and you trade it in, I will give you my life instead. See, the son of man must suffer and die because there can be no resurrection without death. There can be no crown without a cross. The Son of Man says, I invite you to stop trying to gain for yourself and start giving away. And I can take every little bit of broken pieces from you and turn it into something beautiful. For whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. So I'm here to ask you today, I'm here to ask you, what is it that Jesus is inviting you to die to? for the sake of someone else. Listen, if we're gonna follow the path of Christ, if we're gonna be disciples, we must also learn to understand that it will involve some suffering because self-denial hurts. It is not easy, it is painful. Self-discipline is difficult, but Jesus is inviting us into that path. So I'm here to ask you, I want you to think about this for yourself. What in me has to die in order for someone else to be blessed? What in me, maybe it's my pride. Maybe my pride finally has to be crucified so that my wife and my kids can be whole. Maybe, maybe it's my sense of entitlement that finally has to be crucified so I can finally be blessed by somebody else's wisdom. Maybe it's my sense of self-righteousness that finally has to be crucified so I can learn to embrace and accept someone that is hurting and that needs my acceptance. What must suffer and die before there can be new life? Maybe it's my need to always be right that has to be finally crucified so my wife and I can finally find harmony. Maybe it's my need to be exonerated and and maybe it's my need to, to finally be vindicated that has to die before I can reconcile with my friends, my relatives. Jesus is inviting us to something altogether different for the things of man are not the things of God. So what's your trade value? Have you been fooled into thinking there's anything that on your own you can create that's of worth? That's the sad part. There is nothing. You're honest, if I'm honest. But the beautiful part is that Jesus does not value you the way we value each other. And on his balance sheet, there's only one entry. It's called "The Blood of Jesus." On his balance sheet, he takes your side, your liabilities, sin, shame, a lifetime of regrets, and on this side, nothing but the blood. And you know what that adds up to? Forgiveness and grace and hope and a future, not just for you, but for your children and your children's children, for your families, for your relatives, for this church, for this city, for this community, for this world. The blood of Jesus changes everything. That's why we sing to his name, because by that blood, I am covered in it and I'm no longer measured with the trade value that you see me. I'm not worth what your opinion of me is. That's not where it is. That's not where my value is. And neither is your value in my eyes, but in the eyes of the one who fearfully and in awe made you and loves you and would do anything for you. And it's the, he, the one who says, I have come to suffer and to die so there can be resurrection. So follow me. Let's pay this price for others. Let's pay this price so that other people can see that they have value too. Let's you and me suffer and and sacrifice so that other people can see that they are worth more than what they're being sold for. Let's sacrifice so that others can finally begin to see that they too were made in God's image. That it's not their body or their bank account that matters, but it's the fact that Jesus made them himself and loves them. But you and I have to sacrifice to prove that point why does Jesus have to suffer because he's proving the devil's accusations wrong the devil says God doesn't care about you God is a tyrant and he'll get rid of you when you're of no use to him and he's asking too much and Jesus has come to pay the price necessary so that you and I will be convinced that that is not the truth about him but that he is a loving God that will go to any length for you and for me because we matter you matter you are of value to him you believe that? You believe that? Not just you, but the person sitting next to you and across from you and across the aisle and across the city, across the street. We're all sons and daughters, all made in the image of God, all worth his undying attention. That's our trade value. Let's Praise God for that as we stand and sing our closing song.